Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what is this a podcast of? It's about wellness and health and being a good person and helping others. And sometimes you have stories that just kind of make you go, oh, that was so motivating. And sometimes we just like to do things a little bit medical. And you know what? I think when we have topics that people definitely have no family members that may be going through something, one of those things has to be the prostate. It's got to be. You know, one of my earlier podcasts, we were so lucky to talk about breast cancer screening and breast surgery. So I think that, you know, for a fair balance, we're going to have someone, uh, something for the guys this time, you know, not to say that breast cancer can affect men, but I think this one's going to be for the guys. So we are very, very super lucky today that we have one of my friends, someone who's just a really awesome person to kind of just always bug every time I see him in the cafeteria. Dr. Moni Sharon is an expert in robotic and laparoscopic surgery for malignant and benign conditions of the prostate kidney, bladder, and adrenal gland, and the ureter. He trained in urology at some of the premier institutions in India, Australia, and the United States. Dr. Aaron completed his fellowship training in advanced robotics and laparoscopy at the Cleveland Clinic, and he was recruited here to be a Trojan in 2009, and this is the University of Southern California. He has received numerous acclaimed awards, including the GMOMG Medical from the Royal College of Surgeons in Edinburgh, as well as awards for his scientific presentations and surgical videos at the American Urological Association Congress. Dr. Aaron has published extensive publications and it says here, oh my God, more than 200 publications and serves as a reviewer for eight leading urological journals, including the editorial board appointments for three journals. Dr. Aaron has played a pioneering role in the development of refinement of robotic prostate and kidney surgery, single incision laparoscopic surgery, and robotic surgery for bladder cancer. Dr. Aaron has been invited to speak and and demonstrate minimally invasive surgical techniques at numerous national and international institutions. With that all being said, Dr. Aaron, how are you doing today? Doing well, Dr. Raj. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a big treat. Let's do a little kind of get to know each other a little bit. So I love asking this to my guests. So why did you want to become a doctor in general? Um, I come from a family of doctors. My father was a plastic surgeon. My mom is a gynecologist. I really didn't know of any other profession. I was surrounded by physicians all my life. Growing up at the dinner table, conversation was about plastic surgery and uh, delivering babies. And, <laughs> and so all I knew was medicine. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of relatives who are in various medical fields, cardiology, internal medicine, uh, urology, dermatology. So, I mean, uh, it was um, preordained that I would go. 
Yeah, it, it seemed to be a little odd if you just came home and said maybe hockey player instead of like doctor one day, you know? That would not go down well. <laughs> that, that may not go down too well. So I'm still going to make you think back to medical school. And, you know, when we talk about subjects or rotations, what was one of your favorite subjects or rotations to do when you were in medical school? What, ha- what brings you good memories? I think my uh, general surgery rotation was my favorite because uh, you got to scrub in. I got a close skin and it was so fascinating. And um, I used to marvel at how surgeons were able to recognize tissue planes because for me at that time, all planes looked the same. I could not discern fascia from the subcutaneous fat. So for me, they were telling me, hey, this is the uh, denonvias fascia. And I had no idea what the denonvias fascia was. So, you know, uh, it was fascinating. Uh, I was really impressed by... Uh, the surgeon's abilities to, you know, control bleeding, uh, excise malignant organs, and really get the job done. So that was my most fascinating rotation. Well, that kind of makes sense why you went into a surgical field, you know. If you had any nightmares, what would be that one subject or rotation? You're like, yeah, I had enough of this. <laughs> no more. You know, I was never a fan of Although my mother was a gynecologist, but I didn't really enjoy the gynecology rotation uh, because it was sort of unpredictable when uh, women were going into labor and there are two lives in your hands, the mother and the baby, and you're responsible for both of them. I used to find it stressful. (laughs) My mom has delivered babies all her life, but, you know, I just found it very stressful to be responsible for two people and having things be so unpredictable. No, I agree with you. I remember my med school rotations and that one moment where baby and mom may not be doing well, it's just very heartbreaking. And most of the time it does turn out well, but God bless your mom for having the courage. <laughs> I know you went into surgery and you are a urologist. And so what makes someone say, you know what? I'm not really into the heart, maybe not even the lungs. I kind of want to Come on to urology, bladders and prostates and all these things. What drew you to that part of the body? Yeah, so uh, as I mentioned earlier, my father was a plastic surgeon. So he really wanted me to uh, explore plastic surgery as an option, which is a very good specialty. And you can do cosmetic uh, surgery. You can do reconstructive surgery. You can do microvascular surgery. So lots of options. I was drawn towards urology because, um, you know, the technologically intensive nature of the specialty. Uh, There are a lot of advances which happen in technology related to urology. And I was always drawn to miniaturization, endoscopic surgery, getting the same thing done through, you know, less invasive procedures. Uh, Urology was always a pioneering specialty in Mm. going endoscopic and going laparoscopic and so on and so forth. So that's why I was drawn to urology. Also, I was exposed to cutting-edge urology in med school. Uh, One of my sub-rotations within surgery was in a urologic operating room, and I would see uh, surgeons who are really skilled in percutaneous stone surgery. Before that, for many years, people would uh, have open flank incisions to remove kidney stones. Now you could make a puncture into the kidney get make a track into the kidney, get the stones out. So I was really drawn to the miniaturization and endoscopic approaches in urology. Man. And so let me even kind of narrow that even further. So, you know, every time we talk, uh, we chat, I'm like, so what part of urology do you really have a, a strong passion for? And you said prostate. That's why we're doing this like podcast today. So 
why prostate? Is it because it's just something that guys need to be aware about? Is it something you just see? Is there personal reasons? And what did you find that that subpassion of urology? So it didn't begin that way. Initially, I was more interested in stone disease, and I did a lot of stone work. Uh, mm-hmm. but over time, I realized that prostate cancer is the most common con- cancer in American men. And it has not only implications for life, but also quality of life. Because uh, the treatment of any kind of prostate cancer does impact quality of life. So I was kind of drawn towards trying to help uh, people who are going to be diagnosed with prostate cancer to get uh, to preserve their longevity and also try and preserve their quality of life. Now, that was a great answer. I love putting you on the spot. I didn't prep. <laughs> that was a good answer, man. You know, this is a question that, you know, my residents and fellows know I'm going to be interviewing a urologist. So they want me to ask you this. So can you... <laughs> Tell me why every time the medical ICU, like we consult urology to come and help us with putting a Foley with someone. Why are you guys always so angry with us and like frustrated? <laughs> do we, do we get you mad? <laughs> Can't put the Foley in. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't realize you were mad or angry. I don't <laughs> Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I don't think you guys are the most happiest when we make you come in to help us out with putting in some Foley sometimes. <laughs> urologists are the happiest people. That's okay. <laughs> So the, one of the reasons I was attracted to urology is especially yeah. because I always found urologists to be, you know, having fun and being happy. You know, we uh, have a good time in clinic. We have a good time in the OR. We have a good time doing procedures. Uh, so I don't know who uh, you are referring to who's unhappy. Maybe it's, you know, an overworked intern or someone. It, it's not you. It's probably your 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 interns and residents are coming in to do that. Yeah. And maybe, you know, they're, they're working, uh, you know, over extra time or overtime and, you know, they're, uh, you know, under a lot of pressure. But urologists in general are a happy bunch. Okay. I'm gonna, if they're like you, I could believe that 100%. One thing I just wanted to mention, because we, we kind of talk about this quite a bit, is that despite all your accomplishments as a medical doctor, you're getting your master's, aren't you? I am doing my executive MBA, yeah. My question is... Uh, was it not enough with all the knowledge you have just to stay in medicine? What motivates you to get this MBA? And how does it feel being a student again? It feels great. And I was uh, driven to do it because I felt that I was a one-trick pony and <laughs> had tube vision where uh, all I could think of was the urologic realm. And even within urology, I only do a few things. So I wanted to expand my horizons and look beyond urology and not just in the medical field, look beyond medicine and see what is out there and how I can do things better. So that was my purpose. So I I pondered, I even thought about uh, doing law, but, uh, you know, I I found that degree in business is more all-encompassing than a degree in law. So that's why I decided to do a degree in business administration and management and organizational behavior. I mean, those things are relevant to our uh, line of work, especially organizational behavior. But so is business also relevant to uh, things we encounter every day in our lives. So I think it'll make me a more well-rounded person. I can, I can believe it. So with that being said, I'm gonna we're going to jump into the prostate now. I did my research. So... Mm-hmm. I'm going to give a little facts really quick. And you just jump in and say if I have the wrong facts, okay? So from what I looked up, worldwide, there is an estimated 1.4 million new cases of prostate cancer annually, making it the second most commonly diagnosed cancer in men. 
Among men in the United States, it is the leading cause of cancer, accounting for 26% of cancer diagnoses. For an American male, there is a 12% lifetime risk of being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Are all those, did I do a good job? They're all accurate, uh, you know, uh, approximations. With that being said, this is, I wanted to see, let my uh, audience know why we're talking about this. Let's start with the basic question. What is the prostate? So the prostate is this um, a gland which sits between the bladder and the urethra in men. So it's deep down in the pelvis. And uh, it serves the function uh, at a basic level. It serves the function of nourishing the sperm during the reproductive period uh, of men. Okay. It produces certain components which uh, are used to nourish the sperm and um, uh, allow it to, uh, you know, facilitate reproduction. Okay. So that is uh, its its main role. After uh, the reproductive period is over, it doesn't really serve a major role uh, in, in men. So when we talk about prostate cancer, what are going to be the symptoms? You know what I mean? Because we're going to eventually talk about screening and screening is asymptomatic. But what are some of the symptoms that people should be men should be aware about? So uh, usually none. Uh, none? Cancer is usually asymptomatic. Uh, the more common entity is BPH or benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is the one which causes men problems. So a lot of people, when they talk about prostate problems, they're talking about difficulty in urination, urgency, frequency, even recurrent UTIs, uh, hematuria, which can be manifestations of BPH. Now, prostate cancer in and of itself is relatively asymptomatic until it becomes metastatic when it spreads. And that is when it can cause symptoms. Uh, but most of the people who are complaining of symptoms from prostate, as they get older, the prostate becomes bigger uh, and it starts creating symptoms. Most of them are really talking about symptoms of benign prostatic enlargement. The two main issues with the prostate are benign enlargement and prostate cancer. The third less common entity, which can also be uh, symptomatic, is what is called chronic prostatitis, or it used to be called chronic prostatitis. These days, it's called chronic pelvic pain syndrome. So, Todd, focusing on you know prostate cancer, and a, a really broad question, which is, in general, what is the natural history for just most gentlemen guys who have prostate cancer? Prostate cancer is a spectrum. You know, it can be very indolent or it can be very aggressive. The most common kind of prostate cancer is what is called an adenocarcinoma, which arises from the prostate glands, which is the most common type. The overwhelming majority are prostate adenocarcinomas, and they can go from a Gleason score of six to a Gleason score of 10. We don't typically diagnose, and that is a pathological grading system. We don't typically diagnose anything below Gleason six. In the past, um, if you look at some legacy pathology reports, you would find some reports of Gleason 5 or Gleason 4, uh, which is 3 plus 2 or uh, 2 plus 3. We don't report those anymore. Any modern-day pathologist does not. So these days now, people, uh, to avoid the confusion of Gleason 6 to Gleason 10, now we uh, grade them by grade groups. So grade group 1 is Gleason 6. Grade group two is Gleason three plus four, and it goes to grade group five, mm -hmm. grade group, uh, which is Gleason five plus five or five plus four or four plus five. That's a lot of numbers right there that you I just kind of rattled off. A lot of numbers, but uh, long story short, yeah. uh, prostate cancer is a spectrum from indolent, which is usually mm -hmm. Gleason six or grade group one, mm -hmm. to Gleason 10 or grade mm -hmm. group five. Those 
at the upper end of the spectrum are aggressive and a threat to life. Those at the lower end of the spectrum are uh, usually not a threat to life. With that being said, you know, what are the risk factors for prostate cancer? Who are going to be people that are going to be at a higher risk than the general population? So a family history puts people at risk. Uh, okay. If you have um, one or more first degree relatives with prostate cancer, you are at higher risk. So there is a genetic component to prostate cancer. It is probably a polygenic kind of uh, inheritance. And there are environmental factors. Some of the environmental factors include diet rich in animal fat. Oh. Again, this is an association, uh, okay. not necessarily a causation, but uh, an association. So if, if, if people have a diet rich in animal fat, they are more likely uh, or there is an association with prostate cancer. Uh, there is also a racial uh, predisposition uh-huh. so, uh, within the United States. African-Americans are a, at higher risk and uh, Caucasians are higher risk than other ethnicities. You know, Dr. Aaron, I, I got to tell you, I love going to the Ruth Chris Steakhouse, at least, you know, once in a while. Am I going to have to cut back a little bit on that? Am I not supposed to get the the bone-in filet anymore? I mean, should I just eat fish? I- well, uh, everything in moderation <laughs> is okay. Okay. And if you're having a big steak every day, that's probably not good for you for, at multiple levels, as you know, you know, <laughs> it might have impact on the heart, on the colon, so on and so forth. So in general, things in moderation are okay. If you enjoy a steak once a month, nothing wrong with that. Oh, good. Uh, it's always good. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so we said race, we definitely said, uh, watch your diet, which is always a good thing. Genetics are going to be involved. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. There isn't really a specific gene that we we do blood work for in individuals, right? Or there are certain times where you'll be ordering genes, you know, to figure things out? So, yes. Uh, So increasingly, we do genetic counseling and genetic evaluations in people who are diagnosed with prostate cancer. So if somebody has a family history of, say, breast cancer in their mom or their sister, we like to do a genetic evaluation. If somebody has a family history of prostate cancer, or other cancers which are associated with the BRCA2, BRCA1 mutations, uh, cancers associated with Lynch syndrome, those increase the risk of prostate cancer. Especially if you have a younger patient, let's say somebody in their 40s, 50s, early 60s being diagnosed Mm -hmm. with a higher risk prostate cancer, they should undergo a genetic evaluation. That can also be used to uh, determine treatment. For example, if I see 55-year-old, with multifocal Gleason 6 prostate cancer, typically mm-hmm. I could put them on active surveillance. But if we do a genetic evaluation and they are found to have a BRCA2 mutation, I would be more inclined to do surgery because that cancer is likely uh, to be a better Wow. So, you know, I kind of touched this already, but I want to make sure that the listeners understand because I got a little lost myself. So, you know, my question was going to be, how do we diagnose prostate cancer? And I know the Gleason score for my medical students out there, they kind of are salivating to hear more about it. But, you know, for the general person, when we talk about diagnosis, I assume it's going to be some kind of biopsy to make the diagnosis. And the Gleason score, you said it's something that not what you do, it's going to be our friends, the pathologist that does it. And what is the range of, of score? If we could just super dumb it down so everyone would just kind of know exactly what it is. Gleason score comes after the biopsy is done. You can okay. have a Gleason score without a biopsy. So how does yeah. this process start? Usually yeah. the way it starts is that a patient will go to his primary care physician, they'll yeah. do a blood panel, and they'll include a PSA. The PSA will come back as elevated. 
or yep. they'll do a rectal exam and they find an abnormality on rectal yep. exam on the prostate. That triggers a consultation with a urologist. Okay. And when they come to see a urologist with either an elevated PSA or an abnormal DRE finding, then typically we order a prostate biopsy. Mm. Historically, prostate biopsies are done with a transrectal ultrasound. You put an ultrasound probe in the rectum and there is a needle guide. And that through that needle guide, you put needles into the prostate and you get cores of tissue. What is the patient doing? Is he like conscious sedation? Am I awake? Am I talking to you? Like, hey, did you watch the baseball game last night? I mean, what is the patient doing during this time? You can be talking about anything, but yes, you're awake. The patient is awake. The patient is on their side. And I'm simplifying this a lot. Okay. Is, I'm curious. Because there are various ways of doing a biopsy. Transrectal okay. is one of them. Mm -hmm. There's also transperineal where you don't put the needle through the rectum. The ultrasound probe is through the rectum, but the needle is going through the skin. That reduces the risk of infection. You're not passing the needle through the rectum. So transperineal is another way of doing it. But uh, yes, for the most part, the patient is awake. Now, some people like to do uh -huh. transperineal biopsies in the OR under sedation mm -hmm. or anesthesia. Yeah. By and large, the majority of prostate biopsies in the United States and the world are done under local anesthesia in the office. So, you know, I mean, when I go to your office, I know where you are so I can find you. Patients are waiting for you. They just write them in there. That's where you do it. So typically these are scheduled procedures. You would have them uh, lined up for like in the morning session or an afternoon session. Typically each session okay. is about 30, 40 minutes. So when you do these biopsies because of the anatomical location of the prostate, is infection a big thing? Because it's just a kind of dirty area right there? Is that what we worry so about most? If you do a transrectal biopsy, you yeah. bring the needles through the rectum. The rectum has E. coli and other... Uh, exactly, yeah. There is a small but finite risk of infective complications. You can have a UTI, which is relatively easy to treat, but the, the bigger risk is sepsis. And it's not a high risk. It's about a 3%, roughly yeah. ballpark figure, a 2 to 3% risk of sepsis. And mm -hmm. that's why we covered the patients with antibiotics before the biopsy and after the biopsy. Okay. And let's say you were to biopsy my prostate, which you're not. Afterwards, am I going to hate you and not be your friends anymore? Or will I feel nothing? Would I be bleeding the next day? I mean, what are most people after this? So, as I said, you know, you will come to see a urologist for elevated PSA or abnormal uh, prostate exam. Uh, biopsy will be done under local anesthesia, so you should not have any significant discomfort okay. Okay. Uh, because we numb down the prostate when you do the biopsy. But you could have some blood in the urine postoperatively. Okay. You could have some blood in the stool postoperatively. You could have a UTI postoperatively. Okay. You could go into retention, so may not be able to pee because the prostate will swell after you stick needles into it. It swells, and so you might go into retention. Again, the chances of any of this happening are small. In the low single digits, uh, some people have uh, blood in the seminal fluid, for, and that can oh. last for several okay. months because wow. the seminal fluid is uh, parts of the seminal fluid are made within the prostate. If you have somebody sticking needles into the prostate, you could have blood in the seminal fluid for several months. All of these are minor side effects, are usually self-limiting. Mm -hmm. uh, the ones that require intervention. Usually, the most important one is the sepsis. So let's say you successfully get the tissue you want. Now we send it to our friend, the pathologist. What is the Gleason for Dummies way to, what's the take-home message for that? So, you know, they have to uh, grade the cancer. Yep. They have to tell yep. us what kind of cancer it is based on yep. the who we send them yep. and what is the grade. So okay. usually it is an adenocarcinoma, as I mentioned. Okay. Before. 
uh, and then they grade it based on the Gleason score or the grade group. They can be used interchangeably. A few years ago, the Gleason score was a standard way of reporting it. So you would say, okay, this guy has a Gleason 6 cancer, mm-hmm. or he has a Gleason 7 cancer, 8 cancer, 9 or 10 cancer. And 10 is the highest number, right? 10 is the highest. Okay. 10 is now called grade group 5. Gleason 6 is now called grade group 1 because the pathologists wanted to avoid confusion. Because if we said, hey, you have Gleason 6 cancer, a patient could ask, hey, what if I had a Gleason uh, 1 cancer? There is no Gleason 1. There is a Gleason 6 is the lowest Gleason score you can have. Okay. So to avoid that confusion, pathologists came up and said, hey, this is confusing to the public. Let's call it grade group one, which is the lowest Gleason score. Grade group five, which is the highest Gleason score. Okay. Everything else fits in the spectrum between one and five. That was perfect. Because, you know, when you initially were having this conversation, I was like, wow, I just got lost. I need to repeat this. That was wonderful. That was wonderful. Okay. So let me just do one last thing about, you know, prostate cancer or two more things before we talk about screening. In a general sense for the public, you know, when you have cancers, you know what I mean? You definitely want to think not only the biopsy and the tissue diagnosis, but staging. How do you stage most of your patients with prostate cancer? And is this important when you offer them treatment? Yes. So by and large, if somebody is diagnosed with Gleason 6 or grade group 1 cancer, Mm -hmm. PSA is low. We typically don't do any further imaging. We don't do a staging CT. We don't do a staging bone scan. Sometimes and increasingly in our practice, we will do, if somebody is referred to me for elevated PSA or abnormal prostate exam, I will do an MRI upfront before the biopsy. We want to look at the architecture of the prostate and see if there are any suspicious areas in the prostate. Mm-hmm. Because when the patient is going to biopsy, we want to be able to target those abnormal areas on MRI. Now, this is not universally performed, but increasingly more and more academic centers and larger uh, group practices are adopting doing a prostate MRI before doing a biopsy. So that way you have an architecture of the prostate before you do the biopsy. And when you're doing the biopsy, you can target any abnormal areas. So MRI is often already available. But if somebody comes back with a pathology one week later and I see it's a low volume Gleason 6, I will not order any other staging investigations. That makes sense. But if they come back with, let's say, and I'm talking in extremes here, if they come back with Gleason 10 or 5, then I would order a staging investigation. I want to see if it has spread to the lymph nodes or the bones. Historically, that was done using... Uh, what is called the uh, bone scan and the CT scan. You would do CT of the abdomen and pelvis, and you would do a bone scan to look at the Mm -hmm. skeleton. But increasingly, uh, uh, you know, for higher-risk cancer, you can use a specific PET scan, which is called a PSMA PET scan, stands for prostate-specific membrane antigen. And uh, that has just become available in the United States over the last few months. And uh, for somebody with a really high-risk cancer, I would go with a PSMA PET scan for staging. I mean, you you just taught me something because we had, I deal with lung cancers. I mean, I just order a regular PET scan. There's not like a lung cancer specific PET scan, at least not yet I'm aware of. So that's really interesting. So when you're looking for metastatic disease, you could go to radiology, ask them to get this very specific scan looking for that. So, I mean, aside of money and financial, is that becoming the new standard now, you know, compared to bone scanning, which is not commonly used anymore? You know what I mean? 
So uh, PSMA is a relatively late entrant in the U.S. medical field, yeah. but it has yeah. been available worldwide for yeah. years yeah. and uh, is usually the standard staging test for uh, prostate cancer. It was just not available in the U.S. Uh, for uh, inexplicable reasons, but now that it is, it is going to become sort of the dominant scan uh, for uh, patients, especially with higher risk prostate cancer. So I want to make sure I get a little treatment in before we talk about screening. So the way I looked at treatment as a internal medicine doctor, pulmonary critical care doctor, I put it into three categories. I mean, there's expecting management or surgery. And of course, we get clump, radiations, chemos, and all the crazy things you do. Your question is how many people get to expected management? And when we talk about surgery, can you really focus on what you do? And I know that your resume talks about robotic surgery and how can you incorporate what you do that's so special into that? Right. So if somebody has low-risk prostate cancer, which is Gleason 6, even within low-risk, there is a very low-risk category. Somebody has oh. very small volume of Gleason 6. Typically, very low-risk and low-risk cancers are treated with active surveillance. If we tell them, hey, you come back every few months, we'll check your PSA, we'll do a rectal exam. Make sure everything is going well. If your PSA remains stable, if your rectal exam remains stable, we will keep watching you. We do a follow-up biopsy to make sure that nothing has changed. Typically, within a year, we do a confirmatory biopsy to make sure the original biopsy was not wrong. And if at one year also that uh, initial biopsy and the, the new biopsy are essentially the same, we can space out a subsequent biopsy and maybe do it in two years or three years. Sure. That is not set in stone. But in general, if somebody's PSA remains stable, the rectal exam remains stable, and one confirmatory biopsy remains stable, you can space things out so that the burden sure. of intervention is reduced. If somebody has a higher risk cancer, which includes Gleason 7, 8, 9, or 10, usually the treatment op- the standard treatment options are surgery or radiation. In this day and age, at least in the United States, almost always if surgery is undertaken, it is a robotic surgery. Very few people do open prostate cancer surgery anymore. It's it's all robotic. What is uh, ideally suited for, uh, sorry, the, the prostate is ideally suited for robotic surgery because it's a small organ and it's, <laughs> it's a small, yep. deeply situated organ. So you can, um, trying to get it to get to the prostate with regular old-fashioned surgery, it's located deep inside the pelvis. It's dark. Uh, if it starts bleeding, your visualization goes down. Yeah, surgery, you can have your camera above the belly button with with really good illumination and uh, zooming in and zooming out. You can magnify things. Blood loss is minimal because of the carbon dioxide, which is pumped into the belly for robotic surgery. It tampons the venous bleeding. So that reduces. So the prostate is ideally suited for robotic surgery. So Uh that's why the majority of prostate cancer surgery in America is done with the robot. And that's what you do so well. Right. I, I do a lot of that's, that. Yeah. Oh, it's awesome. So with that being said, I did read a fact that was interesting. And I wanted to verify it with you. Mortality rates are declining with prostate cancer. Is that true? Yes, they are. Yes, they and, are. And is and now this kind of leads into is part of that because of some of the controversies with screening that are occurring? Or there are other reasons, too, that I should be aware of? So screening has uh, been somewhat controversial for prostate cancer. There was a time when the USPSTF said uh, prostate cancer screening should not be done. 
and patients were not getting BSAs or rectal exams. And we did notice an uptick in more advanced prostate cancers. And we did notice an uptick in metastatic prostate cancers. So, um, and there are uh, data from the United States and European studies. So uh, again, I don't want to go into the details of the literature, but in general, data from Europe indicates that screening for prostate cancer uh, may save lives. So within the urologic community, there is agreement that we should be screening for prostate cancer. Now, we should not be screening willy-nilly. Then, you know, <laughs> 75-year-old person should not be screened for prostate cancer. Sure. Certainly, people within the age group of 50 or so to about 70, the screening should be discussed with them. And screening basically involves doing a PSA and a rectal exam. Explain to the general public, what is a PSA, first off? PSA is a prostate-specific antigen. It's a protein which is uh, made by uh, the prostate. Mm-hmm. And it is not cancer-specific, so it can mm-hmm. be elevated in UTI, in prostatitis, in BPH, and in cancer prostate. But it's an indicator. And uh, there are various things which have been described to improve the uh, reliability of a PSA test to diagnose or to predict cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, as PSA velocity, PSA density, PHI, 4K score, there are lots of things. Again, I don't want to get into the details. but Yeah, I think you just intimidated all the, my poor medical students. <laughs> Memorized three letters, PSA. I didn't know there was all these other things involved. Yeah, there, there are books <laughs> written on PSA. There are yes. multiple papers on PSA and, uh, you know, how it is imperfect and how we can mm-hmm. improve upon it. But basically, it's a blood test. We do a blood test. If the number is high, we suspect there might be cancer and we try to rule it out. So let me just say this. So I I feel the same way. I think that PSA is the screening blood test that we do for prostate cancer. What about digital rectal exam? You called it a DRE during our conversation. So that's what uh, everyone here is referring to. Do we use a digital rectal exam as a screening test for prostate cancer? Do you recommend it? What is your opinion? Some people don't, but I do. The reason for that is that there might be some prostate cancers which may not produce PSA. Mm-hmm. They are uncommon, but they can happen. And number two uh, is that if the PSA is borderline, but the rectal exam is suspicious, then you will still trigger a biopsy. So it gives you an additional piece of information with very little downside. Mm. So I, uh, it's like an extension of a physical exam. So I, I feel that uh, it should be done. Anytime a person comes to me with a prostate issue, doing the rectal exam is, I think, a part of the physical exam and should be done. And, you know, let me say the opposite of that. I was kind of on the mentality that, you know, the reason why maybe some organizations don't include the digital rectal exams because we'll miss a lot of stuff, you know, because I know that, you know, I can't tell you the last time I did a good rectal exam to find a abnormality. Maybe I'm not, it's, it's, seems reasonable for a urologist to do it because you know what to look for. You know what I mean? So maybe that's another part of why the DRE hasn't been included into all, you know, screening guidelines. What do you think? You're right. I mean, uh, for a, it is more uh, meaningful to a urologist than it might be to a, let's say a pulmonologist. 
<laughs> certainly, uh, if I get a patient who's being evaluated or there is a suspicion for prostate mm-hmm. cancer, I do. Even patients with, who I put on active surveillance, I will uh, do a rectal exam periodically because I want to see if the prostate is now indurated because mm-hmm. I'm watching this patient, but now his prostate becomes indurated, maybe the cancer is coming close to the surface and yeah. maybe I need to change my treatment plan. If mm-hmm. I have a patient... Like uh, we don't screen people who are above the age of 70 routinely for prostate mm-hmm. cancer. But if a patient comes to me with, say, urinary tract symptoms, we do not doing a PSA screen, but I put my finger in and I feel a hard, rock-hard prostate, then I know there is something wrong and I need to find out what's wrong. So I think a DRE is, an, is a very useful tool with mm-hmm. very little downside. No, well said. And so when we talk about the, the cancers that we screen for here in the United States, of course, they're always associated with the word you know, it improves mortality, whether it be the colon or breast, you know, or the cervix. So does uh, prostate cancer screening reduce mortality? Is it improving survival? If you look at European data, yes. Uh, There was a study which was done uh, in the United States, uh, which did not show a benefit of screening, but it was not a long-term study. Certainly, uh, long-term data from Europe indicates that screening will save lives. Wow. Now, you kind of touched about this already, about the false positive, you know, the PSA, the blood work that we're talking about, prosthetic-specific antigen. So, are there common things, like I read somewhere that bike riding could give you an elevated PSA and sexual intercourse can give you an elevated PSA? Or, I mean, what, what's myth? What is fact? So, what, what else... Uh, falsely elevated PSA? Certainly, if you have a recent ejaculate and you mm-hmm. go for a PSA draw, if you ejaculated within the last 48 to 72 hours, mm-hmm. your PSA might be artifactually elevated. If you Certainly, if you sit on a hard bicycle seat and ride 40 miles, you could uh, have an artifactual elevation of the PSA. These mm-hmm. things can occur. Uh, more commonly, things that lead to uh, an artifactual elevation of PSA is if you had a recent UTI. Somebody did an instrumentation, or if you have prostatitis or just a huge gland, you could have PSA without cancer. You know, you mentioned about age. And so, once again, I did my research and there was kind of like recommendations. You mentioned a group, actually, you're so on it. The the USPSTF said something about screening between 55 and 69, but don't do it after 70. Can you kind of say why only the 55 to 69 is the sweet spot for screening? This is similar to the AUA uh, guidelines, okay. uh, which says that the group which is likely to benefit the most from screening is the group between 55 and 69. Uh, why? We, why? Why is that? I mean, once if I'm 50, 50 years old, why can't we do it in 50? Why can't I do it? At- Again, these are uh, uh, arbitrary cutoffs based okay. on currently available literature, which is not mm-hmm. perfect. But uh, let's talk about extreme numbers. A difference okay. between 50 and 55 is small. I typically screen people above the age of 50 in my practice. The difference between 50 and 55 is not that much. Uh, typically, we avoid screening after 70. Even if you get diagnosed with prostate cancer after the age of 70, chances are something else is going to get to you before the prostate cancer gets you. Like a heart attack or something like that? Right. For the most part, the example I gave you earlier, if I examine somebody's prostate and I find a rock hard prostate, which is fixed, now that is a bad actor. I need to treat that prostate cancer, even if it's 45. Again, these are generalizations. They Mm -hmm. don't always apply to the individual. But you should not be screening typically somebody who's 35 years old with a PSA. 
so they say the AUSA, American Neurological Association says after the age of 40, before mm-hmm. you should screen for cause. Let's say you have a family history of a prostate cancer or a family history of breast cancer in the family. You might be harboring a, a BRCA2 mutation and those are categories you might screen. If you have a abnormal, for whatever reason, you uh, you go in and you um, get a PSA test done and it is sky high at that age. So those can be concerning things. But by, by and large, screening between 40 and 54 should be selective. Mm-hmm. And again, these are arbitrary numbers. What is the difference between 54 mm-hmm. and 55? So uh, 55 to 69, most people say should have a discussion. Again, they don't say always screen. They say you should have a discussion about screening because mm-hmm. there are potential benefits and potential harms. Yeah. And then beyond 70, don't do routine screening. But they don't mm-hmm. say that you cannot do screening. I and mean, if you find a compelling reason to do it, you can offer it to them and have a discussion with them about it. So what you just summarized is what we call shared decision-making, correct? Mm-hmm. I think people need to know that. It's not an easy decision. That's why seeing a urologist, seeing your primary care is going to be so important. When we talk about screening, what about frequency? So we talked about initiating the screen. I mean, are you going to screen them every year, every five years, or how do we do frequency? Uh, let's say somebody is, uh, let's just talk about that bucket of 50. 55 to 70. Okay, the sweet spot, okay. uh, Which is uh, where people believe the maximum benefit of screening would be achieved. So somebody comes in at 55, his PSA is very low at two and rectal exam feels completely normal, no other problems. We don't necessarily have to screen them every year. We could potentially do another uh, PSA in two years. Okay. Uh, If uh, that one is also at two, you could do the next one at three years. So you could space things out. However, if the person at 55 comes in with a PSA of, say, 3.7, that's not a very low PSA. There, I want to check it again, uh, assuming everything else checks out and rectal exam is fine. And with shared decision making, he decides not to have a biopsy. Then here, I would check it again in one year. Okay. Tailor it based on what the initial PSA was, what the rectal exam shows, what the family history is, and the level of comfort in the patient about screening. Okay. So I think you kind of almost answered this, but I want to hear it from you is, so is your cutoff to discontinue screening? Because we do have some guidelines, at least in the lung literature for lung cancer screening. When do we stop? When do you discontinue screening for these individuals, right? When they hit 70, you're like, okay, no more. Or how, how does that, how, what is the approach? Yeah, typically I don't screen people beyond the age of 70, but I, I will, if they come to my office, I will still do a rectal exam because that could be an indicator for a bad act. Okay. And now here, here is going to be just kind of bring it all together, which is going to be like when you see, see your patients that come to you, do most people want to get screened? Are they informed? Do they use you as the first step in getting the, the broad information and thinking about it? What do you think the trend is now in the year almost 2022 when it comes to prostate cancer screening? Uh, So I personally don't do screening. Most people who come to my practice are already screened, but there was a big dip in patients getting PSA tests by their family physicians. Uh, I would say eight years ago when the USPSTF guidelines came out, I don't remember the exact year, but about 2012-ish. It was a dip, but now I'm seeing more and more patients being screened. And as I mentioned earlier, we did notice that we were seeing more patients with more advanced cancers and metastatic cancers. 
uh, in the in the clinic setting after two or three years of the, that initial USPSDF guideline. Now, you're, you're going to be a little sad when I tell you this, but wow, that was my last question. You know, uh, whether you like it or not, I'm going to make you my official urologist for the Dr. Rod show. Would you be nice enough if I get some more questions from my audience about the procedure anywhere in the, in the kidneys or bladder and all the things you specialize in to answer those? Of course. No problem. Nice. Well, hey, thank you for coming on today. And everyone, if you want, hey, if someone wants to... Uh, have any more questions or schedule an appointment? How do they do that? How can they get a hold of you? Um, uh, my office, I guess. On the show notes, I'll put where how they can make an appointment with you if anyone wants to have any more questions or see you as a doctor. Sound good? Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Everyone, thank you for tuning in today for the Dr. Raj podcast. Stay tuned in a few weeks for our next episode and take care. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.